This is Customer Experience Leaders, a podcast produced by Rated. It's a show where we reveal the secrets of how great brands delight their customers. Companies turn into these big directionless things that are driven by shareholder intent instead of a clear vision from someone or a group of people that want to do something special and important to actually make a positive change. That's the voice of Ray Gillenwater. He's the founder of Speak Up, who are experts in employee engagement. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey. I'm Michael Momsen, and how are you doing, Adam? Hey, Mike. So, today we're speaking to Ray about how your employees can make a bigger impact on your customers than what you might think. Listen out for some of the practical tips he gives away on how to use technology to delight customers. But before Ray started his company, he was the managing director of BlackBerry, Australia, New Zealand. Now, I recorded this interview while I was traveling in California recently, so it's just me and Ray in the room, but we'll check back in with you, Michael, after the interview to hear about your key takeaways. I started off by asking Ray about the best customer experience he's had recently. It's probably with Chase. So, I have a Chase reserve card. and um, Chase is a bank here in the US for reference. That's right, yeah. Usually, when you call a bank... Just like when you call any other big company, it's a painful experience. You're on hold, you're going through menus, and then achieving what you want to achieve takes maybe 20, 45 minutes or maybe multiple calls. To me, customer experience is very emotional. And so if your customer has a strong emotion one way or the other, and the product or, and or the experience helps make the most of that uh, in a positive way, then that's a win. So in my situation, I had one of those scary moments where I found out that someone had stolen my credit card info. And I looked at my bill and I had a whole bunch of charges that were not mine. And then you have the promise from credit card companies like, hey, if you didn't authorize a transaction, it's not your responsibility. But then comes time to actually determine if that claim is true. And so that's the big question when I called Chase. So I called Chase feeling a little bit unsure about how long it would take to resolve the issue and how much of a pain it would be and if they would back up what they said they would do. So I called the dedicated number that I have as a reserve client they answered in 30 seconds, zero menus, and my, my issue was addressed right away. I think the total call, including going through the itemized transactions, took 12 minutes, and they immediately reversed the charges. So that tells me that they care about me as a customer. They've thought about what my experience might be in an ideal world or not, and they clearly demonstrated that they give a shit. How do you build that experience? How do you design that? Because you, you said that you went into that with an expectation that was very different to what the actual experience was like. I think it stems from philosophy. I think that there are some companies that are money-making machines. And so they look at customer experience as a necessary evil. And they do the sort of the lowest common denominator or whatever is required to get the job done to a minimal level. And then you have mission-driven companies that feel like the customer is at the center of everything they do. And they build experiences around that. Now, I don't know where Chase is in that continuum. Maybe they just treat their high-end clients like that. I don't know. But I know that they nailed it in this instance. And it's clear that their philosophy, at least for this product, is that the customer experience should be fantastic. Now, mind you, that's an expensive customer experience. So they can't give it to everybody. But in today's world that's very you know technologically driven, it is possible to improve customer experiences with technology. And not a lot of companies are doing that adequately, in my opinion. Tell me about one of the bad customer experiences you've had. <laughs> AT&T, 
is uh, my least favorite company to deal with. So I just opened a gym as a passion project and we set up internet in the gym and just dealing with AT&T probably took 30 hours of time in a four week period. It was an absolute nightmare. It's clear that either they don't care or they, they just haven't connected all the disparate systems. So it's poorly thought through. With AT&T, for example, I had a cable run through the building that would provide me with fiber speed, but their system would not allow them to switch on the fiber speed for me. So in 2017, my max upload speed in my business is one megabit per second. Over fiber. <laughs> <laughs> Over fiber. Why does that happen then? It happens because companies turn into these big, amorphous, directionless things that are driven by quarterly profit objectives and shareholder intent instead of a clear vision from someone or a group of people that want to do something different and special and important to actually make a positive change. So are we in this to make money or are we in this to create something special and as a result make money? Let's contrast those two examples though. Chase is a big bureaucracy. It's a financial company. Like They're, they're typically very bureaucratic and, and structured and have lots of hierarchy and all that kind of crap. The same as a telco, the same as AT&T. So, in my mind, they're very similar styles of businesses with very similar styles of challenges. So, why can one provide a great experience and the other provide a horrendous one? Chase probably created the fantastic experience as a purely a mercenary type business decision. So, they discover that customer experience actually gets you high-end customers, loyal high-end customers that, that pay the bills and are highly profitable. So, that's what I suspect. And I think that's evidenced by the rest of their experience. So for example, even as a reserve customer, when you go into their online banking, you get this standard eight to 10 year old interface. Maybe they've freshened it up, but it's super slow. It's super clunky. Their password requirements are outdated. The user flow is outdated. It's overly complex. It's hard to read. So they nailed a piece of the customer experience, which you can tell that they tailored to a certain subset of their customer base but they have not thought it through from end to end. And it's clear that they're in need of a major update and whatever is the reason that they haven't done it, they, they haven't done it. So I'm not saying it's easy. It's tough being a, a big clunky company, but finance in particular needs a massive reboot. So in your own words, Ray, define customer experience for me. Well, let's first define customer. So I would say that a customer is better described as a user because to me, a customer doesn't have to be paying. And I think the word customer implies payment. You should treat your non-paying customers as well as your paid customers to an extent, especially when it comes to onboarding and discovery so that they become paid customers later. And then what is experience? So ex experience is just a subjective notion of reality. So it, it's how much did a customer or a user enjoy or not their interaction with your product, service, or staff and how well did they achieve their goals that they had in mind or not when they attempted that interaction? So to me, that, that's customer experience. I think what you've illustrated actually highlights one of the big challenges of customer experience, which is that it's so cross-disciplinary. It's digital, uh, it's operations, it's marketing, it's HR. Yeah, I want to add to that. I think if you imagine customer experience as a large circle and then user experience as a smaller concentric circle within that, that's when it starts to, to make more sense. And I, I focus on user experience, especially because I feel like user experience, so a customer's pathway through your app and specifically onboarding as the most important part of that, 
is probably the most crucial element of the whole journey. And as technology takes over more and more of the customer experience, the user experience becomes even more important. So I think priorities are what make good companies great. And to have priorities, you need to understand what elements of customer experience are most important. If you think that's user experience, what elements of user experience are most important. And in my opinion, user onboarding is probably the most important piece of that because ultimately the onboarding to your product or service is the barrier that stands between your customer and them experience success with what you're offering. I want to talk about kind of your career background and how you got to where you are today. So let's rewind the clock. You started at Verizon, which is one of the uh, competitors to uh, AT&T. <laughs> After Verizon, you moved on to BlackBerry, the now infamous BlackBerry. <laughs> Tell me what, what, what you did there. Sure. So I really wanted to go back overseas after I did my study abroad. And I was looking to, to join a global company to do just that. And so I applied at BlackBerry and I essentially did the same job that I had at Verizon in the same region, but looking after T-Mobile. So I helped T-Mobile sell data services, specifically BlackBerry data services, and used our device as the mechanism to help them do that. And you rose the ranks pretty quickly, eventually culminating in a role as managing director of Australia and New Zealand. I think you were 27 at the time. Yeah, that's right. What does uh, a managing director of an entire country or region actually do? Depends who you ask. <laughs> <laughs> there was the way I looked at it. And then there was the way that others in the company looked at it. And this is kind of one of BlackBerry's core problems, which is those two things didn't overlap as often as they should have. So to me, a regional MD should be the CEO of their of their area, of their region. Look at the business holistically. They should manage sales operations and everything in between. They should ensure that products are where they need to be for that region and the experience for the customer is outstanding. The sales process, the customer service process and, and everything else, it should be end-to-end. -end. Some companies look at MDs of regions as senior sales leaders, which I think is, uh, you mentioned customer experience is interdisciplinary, right? So. If you have someone responsible for an entire part of the world just thinking about sales, I think it's clear that there are some shortcomings in that in that way of thinking. Yeah, that's fair. BlackBerry's kind of an infamous history of being, you know, the basically the almost inventor of the smartphone um, and, you know, creating the device that business people would use for email and that kind of thing. Also, the infamous downfall. They were the market leader. They were the the innovator, and then eventually they were nobody a couple mm. of years later after Apple came onto the scene mm. and blew them out of the water, and then Android did the same. What happened to BlackBerry? I think this will be the topic of, uh, of debate in business schools for decades to come. <laughs> what happened was pretty monumental. I mean, at one point, BlackBerry was the, the sixth biggest brand on earth, and now their market share in the U.S. is 0%. So it's, it's sad because, yeah, they, they made such incredible products for a period of time. The innovation was so unique and groundbreaking when, when email on the phone came out. And they really had a leader's position. That's the fun part about business. They had this really clever take on the smartphone from a competitor, Apple iPhone, obviously, that, that came into play. And then their future sort of depended upon how well they reacted to that or not. And there were a few missteps along the way. I mean... Speed is is an issue. As a hobby, I'm into I'm into fight stuff like combat sports. And I heard a coach tell me once that to win a fight, you have to do the most work in the least amount of time. And I think that those are very wise words. And I also think that's how you win a business. 
BlackBerry became too slow for their size. So their ability to act quickly and innovate and do the email on phone level of innovation again was limited as a result. And there's a bunch of other issues within that. I mean, people can point fingers at the, you know, the two CEO structure. Um, there's, there's a bunch of stuff that could have definitely been optimized, but ultimately the response to the iPhone was slow, was incomplete and was not fully thought through from an end-to-end -end customer experience perspective to bring it back to the topic of this podcast. Yeah, I guess I would argue that there was no response to the iPhone. Like internally, maybe they thought they were responding to it, but looking at it from the outside, they never really produced a product that competed on the same level. But they tried. So um, they did a huge collaboration with Verizon in the States and released the BlackBerry Storm 1, which is probably the worst piece of technology in the last decade. I mean, it was, it was truly horrendous. It was such a poor experience. It was buggy. It was clunky. It just didn't function well in any capacity as a typing phone or as a touchscreen phone. And, um, you know, they were, they were too far along and too, too invested in the plan to pull the plug or to put it on hold. So it launched and it just, um, I don't think the company ever recovered from that point. Mm. The reason I'm asking those sort of questions is I'm trying to contrast some of the examples that you gave earlier about companies are doing really great, engaging with customers, those that are not. And then also talk about, you know, BlackBerry, one of the world's best brands at a time, how it kind of obliviated into nothingness. Well, there's an important point. So this is a level of nuance that I'm not sure an external party like yourself would, would realize just, just reading the news, but it's very important to understand who is your customer when you're thinking about the customer experience. Apple knows that their customer is the end user. They don't care about the carrier and they make the carrier bend to their whim. Whether that's good or bad, it works very, very well. To me, a carrier partner is just a pipe, right? A carrier partner, you have to work, play friendly with them because um, you know, they're, they're the distributor of your device or the one that set the pricing plans and you have to play nicely to bring your product to market. But if you have leverage, you gotta use the leverage so that you can delight the customer. And so BlackBerry was constantly trying to determine who do we please? Do we please the carrier by being uh, really data light, for example, and not sucking up a huge amount of bandwidth over their network? Um, or do we, do we focus on the customer experience and improve their browser, as an example, and uh, not worry about being a little bit data heavy on the network side? All right, I want to do a, a bit of a quick fire round. Uh, so the next couple of questions, you got 10 seconds each to answer. If you could change one thing from any industry to improve its experience, what would it be? I'm going to include government in this. And I think governments around the globe need to radically improve the way they look at the experience of their users. They need to go digital and they need to make everything way simpler. I love that. What books or resources can you recommend uh, for other people um, who are interested in learning more about this space? So I mentioned that I think user onboarding is the most important part of user experience, which is the most important part of customer experience. And the user onboarding guru is a guy named Samuel Hulick. Useronboard.com, I think, is the URL. And then I'm going to ask you the one of the first questions again, but I'm going to give you a 10-second uh, limit on it. In your own words, define customer experience. Customer experience is your user's subjective view on how well they achieve the goal that they had initially when they set out to have an interaction with your company. I like that. And I think you've got that in under 10 seconds. So congrats. What is employee engagement? Maybe we should actually define what that is. My definition is 
does your team care or not? And to what extent? And why does that matter? Because if you have a bunch of mercenaries working for you that are there to collect a paycheck, their work will be uninspired. The products they create will be the minimum that they have to do to pass. And the experience they provide the customer will be just the bare minimum. But if you get people that believe in the mission, that are passionate about what they're doing, that are professionals that realize that more than half of my waking hours are spent at this workplace, and I really care about what we're doing here, then they'll put in the extra effort. They'll make sure that they're communicating internally in a way that makes their colleagues happy. They'll make sure that when they interface with customers, they're doing so in a way that shows empathy and that they care about what the customer's actually going through. And when they put their hands on the products, they'll do so in a way that shows care and craft and shows a desire to make things really, really good instead of just passable. So the distinction is world-class company versus doing the bare minimum to get by. There's a great study uh, that was produced a little while ago by Gallup. You're probably familiar with it. Uh, it said only 13% of employees around the world are actively engaged at work. What's worse is 24% are actively disengaged. Now, if we if we look at it and say only 13% are actively engaged, that's what, 80, 87% that are either disengaged or just passive. So that's almost nine out of 10 employees that you have that don't give a shit. It's stunning. I mean, if you think about the economic cost of setting up a company that just lacks inspiration and lacks vision and lacks a, a mission that people truly want to rally around, it's monumental. It's probably the biggest economic cost globally. And when AI takes over our jobs, we'll deserve it. <laughs> so this is obviously a big problem. But what do we do about it? How do you make people passionate and engaged and excited? I think this is a huge misnomer. So if there's a, a leader at a company listening to this podcast and you think an initiative or a tactic is going to get your employees to care, I think you're missing the point. So I think there's two really important pieces of the equation. Piece number one is you have to really, really care about hiring the right people. You have to have a culture Google style, whereby good enough does not pass the test. Great only. And you're not just looking at skill, but you're also looking at will. So if someone has the will, they have the passion and they'll push even when things are uncomfortable, even when things aren't clear, even when things aren't ideal. If you instead just look at resumes and skill set and background and you hire good people or good enough people, then you'll get a mixed bag. So that's, that's issue number one. Issue number two is you cannot expect someone to care if you don't give them something to care about. And so if the CEO doesn't care, if the CEO isn't inspired, if, if there isn't a clear mission that leadership believes in, there's no way the team's going to, to rally around a mission. It just doesn't make sense. So I think those two elements are the most important part of the equation. What impact does employee training have on things? Because you talked about the hiring process, which is important, but if you're a CEO or a managing director or, or you know, head of a company or a brand right now, you can't just fire everybody and rehire your entire staff and expect that you're going to have this great outcome. So how do you pivot or shift uh, if, if, the, if the internal culture or, or the, the passion is maybe not exactly where you want it to be? Can you train people? Well, if we're talking about big companies, it's super hard and it's going to take a long, long time. And 
the board needs to ensure that the leadership team, especially the CEO, is the right person to rally people around a passionate mission. So that's the most important part. And then from there, clear standards need to be set around hiring practices. And uh, the employee journey is a lot like the customer journey because once you bring an employee into the fold, they need to be onboarded. And training is a part of onboarding, especially for an established company. There are plenty of new companies where this doesn't apply to. You just have to hire a Swiss army knife and and let them loose on big problems and let them sort of be self-directed. But in big companies where roles are well-defined, there needs to be a distinct and well thought through onboarding process. Mm. Let's dive into that a little bit. How should we think about employee onboarding and training and that kind of thing? I think the same tenants apply to employee onboarding as they do to customer onboarding. So if my experience that I mentioned earlier with AT&T was that I tried to use their service and pay them, and it was so bad that I'm on this podcast talking about it, (laughs) (laughs) take any world-class brand and um, imagine if an employee had to wait for months before hearing back, go to an interview that maybe the interviewer was late for, go through an unclear process, have an undefined amount of time between that date and a decision date, have an unclear kind of training protocol or unclear job requirements set, or just just a lack of clarity about how to get started, who to talk to, where to go. And then maybe along the way, bump into people that are engaged at work and don't care about their job and are actively disengaged, which means they're talking poorly about the company and the leadership. That is a, a very poor employee onboarding experience. And you might expect that that negativity will permeate its way through that employee's mindset and their execution on the job. Yeah. And let's follow that all the way along to the customer, right? And I want to kind of talk about how employee engagement, employee onboarding, you know, internal communications actually impacts the customer. Like how how can we take it that next step? Because when companies are trying to make decisions and change things internally, you need to almost tie financial metrics or KPIs to it. And and generally that's resulting in sales or retention, which is a, I guess, splinter of the customer's interaction. This is actually why I think companies that put customers first have it backwards. Uh, this is not a unique philosophy that I've come up with, but it's one I've learned. Uh, there's an Indian author, I'll have to recall the name and shoot it to you so you can put it in the show notes. But he wrote a book uh, where essentially his core thesis was your employees come first. Because if you put your customers first at the expense of your employees, that's clearly backwards. And if you put your employees first and you make sure they're happy, they're engaged, they're well-paid, they're super detailed, they're focused, then they'll make your customers happy. Because how do you get to to happy customers? Happy employees is where you start. I just want to clarify that. You said companies should not be customer-centric, should not put their customers first. They should be customer-centric, but they shouldn't lie to themselves and think that saying that customers are the most important thing is the way to get there. What I'm saying is the way to get there is to put your employees first because it's your employees that make your customers happy. Awesome. Let's talk about communication internally. Most companies are pretty good at top-down communication, the command and control style, you know, military style where you set a direction and an objective and then you tell your kind of senior leaders what needs to happen and then they tell their middle management and then they tell all the, the plebs um, <laughs> and everybody else, right? And, uh, and it's a very hierarchical structure. Companies are great at that. What problems does that style of management create? 
Well, I love that you use the word plebs, uh, short for plebeians for the non-Australians listening, um, tongue in cheek, because there are leaders in 2017 that view their staff in this way, which is so backwards because middle management are the paper shufflers. They're the ones that are making decisions and sitting in the office, but it's the quote unquote plebs that are actually interfacing at the front line with the customers, which is the most important function. So my philosophy in business is that the top-down communication paradigm needs to be flipped on its head. My view is that some of the best intelligence that's in the field, some of the most important insight and clarity into the biggest customer and product issues is all residing within the brains of the people on the front line. And if there's not a way to systematically capture and curate that intel within a company, then the company is going to be flying blind to an extent. So is it a bottom-up communication style that we're aiming for? Yeah, I mean, I like to refer to it as that, but I think that's unclear for people that aren't um, deeply ingrained in the internal communication space. So it depends on who the audience is. Bottom-up works for some. Internal crowdsourcing works for other. Um, you know, an internal Reddit-type tool works. Uh, it just depends on who the audience is. But yeah, that's, that's basically it. The reason I ask that question is because I wonder if bottom-up is actually the right approach. It still implies that the frontline employees are the bottom of the food chain. I wonder if a better way to phrase it maybe is, uh, you know, it's about empowering frontline employees rather than bottom of the chain employees. Yeah. So bottom up just refers to the hierarchy. Yeah. And so for companies that are eliminating hierarchy like Zappos and they're experimenting with holacracy and things, that phrase wouldn't apply. But, um, but yeah, certainly I see your point. I guess I'm implying that the hierarchy is some of the problem. It can be for sure. Too many layers of management and uh, senior leadership being way too far removed from the actual customer experience. My favorite CEOs are the ones that field customer support calls. They're the ones that use their own products. They're the ones that call in to their own customer service lines and email their own customer support to see what it's really like from the customer perspective. If the CEO doesn't know what that's like, then they're not paying close enough attention to the customer experience. Give me the 30-second elevator pitch of what SpeakUp is and does. If you have a team that has great ideas and or they're willing to highlight important issues to make the company products and or services better, then SpeakUp is a tool that helps you facilitate that. If someone on the team has an idea, they post it, the rest of the team votes, and then management makes a decision which is transparent to everybody. So it's not a suggestion box, it's not a Slack channel, it's not a top-down cascade email. It's not an all-hands meeting. It is uh, a way to capture real live feedback from the team. It's especially interesting because those topics that are taboo, those issues that are simmering below the surface that a lot of companies are too afraid to address, well, those issues are there whether you want to address them or not. So for the companies that have the guts to address them, speak up as a tool for them. But we're definitely not for everybody. What results have you seen from brands that are using SpeakUp? Well, we've had customers tell us that SpeakUp has been the most important thing that they've done, whether it be a tool or a process in terms of improving employee engagement and their employee experience. So that feels really good. It's not super tangible, but uh, we do have tangible examples. We did a case study with our very first beta customer. It was a company in Canada that makes hardware for taxi cabs. And so they have global offices especially the non-North American teams felt like they didn't work for the company. They felt totally disengaged. 
the success story from those guys was that they had a junior engineer recommend that they enable payment within their app to help them compete with the likes of Uber. Now, is that something that saved their industry? Probably not. But did that highlight the fact that junior people have important ideas, even obvious ideas that management may just overlook that need to be looked at? I think so. How do you guys delight your speak up customers? We use the golden rule. So it's just, how do we want to be treated? And when a customer comes to us with the request, I reply to them, the team replies to them the way that I would want to be spoken to. Getting feedback from employees that have a customer touch point is super crucial because generally, you know, senior management is just too far away from the customer to be able to know where the shifts are, where the trends are, that kind of stuff. Something like SpeakUp is great at being able to create that. I think it's both customer touch point and product touch point. Mm. If one of your employees or if any of your employees have their hands on any piece of the product or any piece of the customer journey, you have to have a way to hear from them because they have insight that you don't have. It's just a matter of getting detailed. There's like a trifecta. There's the, the customer information, there's the product information, and then there's like the employee information. And it's like the trifecta of the hidden gems that most companies are actually missing all three. No doubt. And there's a whole lot of overlap. Yeah. Ray, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Adam. My oh my, what a crazy <laughs> interview. There's some absolute bombshells and a, a huge amount of energy from Ray there. So uh, so many truth bombs. I, it was just a shame the expense budget didn't allow for me to get on a plane to LA to join you, but um, <laughs> it was fantastic, fantastic listening. Yeah, so Mike, um, since you, you weren't there, I did want to kind of ask, what were your key takeaways from that discussion, listening in for the first time? Oh, gosh. You know, I've got two pages of notes here, so picking up the, the top two is pretty tough. Um, for me, the quote which says, I believe the customer experience is very emotional, I think so yeah. fucking important because yeah. especially for us in the industry, it's so easy to think about journey, about mapping, about, you know, all these types of things. But ultimately, it comes down to when that user, when that customer is there, it is emotional. It's highly emotional. And what they um, perceive of the customer experience is emotions. And it's also personal as well, right? Mm. Like it's, it, it, it's uh, and it's very subjective. One of the things that I actually really loved about that chat was, and I was kind of a bit confronted by it when Ray talked about putting your employees first before mm. customers. I was like, hang on, like everything that we talk about in customer experience is about customer centricity. Right. And he makes a very compelling point over the series of, you know, 20 or 30 minutes um, about why employees should be your key focus. And uh, that book that Ray mentioned during the interview is called Employees First, Customers Second. It's by Vineet Nayar. So, uh, yeah, that was a big one for me. Yeah, I thought that was good. The second thing for me was having a real clear view of who your customer is. And I actually worked at BlackBerry before he did. And I remember the carrier or the telco absolutely was our customer. Like the end user just happened to be buying it from the telco. Yeah. But we orientated everything around making the telco happy. Yeah. There was many things that BlackBerry suffered with, but that was one of the, the key things. And I think that's really important when we think about our businesses and our roles, because we have many, many, many uh, customers. There may be a distributor, there may be an advertiser, there may be a partner, there may be a reseller. And so... It's worth spending the time to deeply think about who is at the center. Yeah, and also like knowing which stakeholders to, to pull the strings on uh, against when because the BlackBerry model worked for a while, right? And then Apple came onto the scene and the whole marketplace shifted. So, 
The other key takeaway that I loved in the chat with Ray was he talked a lot about UX, you know, user experience. And initially, mm. I, I kind of thought, you know, like, well, this kind of only applies to, to, to Ray's business because, you know, he's he's running a software business, right? Right. But the more that I, I thought about it and kind of reflected on this episode, I thought, actually, this applies more than ever. We're in a yeah. digital world where, you know, we actually probably engage with most businesses through a digital channel more than we do any other channel. Yes. If you think about your bank or your airline, or uh, even a lot of retailers, right? I'm looking at, you know, where they are, what their store hours are, their Google listing before I even go into a retail establishment. Right. And so, um, the, the user experience and the way that um, information is displayed and and, uh, and and making that delightful is actually one of the most paramount areas of customer experience. All right. So, just in summary, um, my key takeaways were focusing on employees rather than customers and... Keeping in mind that UX, uh, user experience, is a huge part of customer experience. For me, you know, customer experience being very emotional. And the second one is it's worth mapping out and spending some time thinking about who exactly is your customer. If you've got any thoughts, anything you wanted to add to this, any examples actually where you see some good execution of these points, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me directly, michael at ratedapp.com. And I'm Adam at wavelength.audio. Thanks so much for listening. See ya. Customer Experience Leaders is a co-production of Rate It, the market leader in on-the-spot customer feedback, and Wavelength, podcasting strategy and execution. This episode was produced by Nick Jones and me, Adam Jaffrey, and it was edited by Josh Armour from Armapod Productions. Thank you to Courtney Carmen and Jariah Lau for our beautiful artwork and special help from the team at BE Media. Thanks also to the team at Neely who helped us with our amazing trailer episode. Isn't it great? Our theme music is by Icolix and Peter Cooley. If you like this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps a lot. Coming up next time on Customer Experience Leaders, we speak to the Chief Customer Officer at Sumo Salad. And he tells us about some of the challenges of being a chief customer officer when you have over 160 restaurant franchises around the country. We've done a lot of things that have failed. I'd be lying if I said no, never. So an example that comes to mind, we changed our packaging and that, of course, drove people to the smaller size. So you've always got to be mindful of what grabs the customer's attention. That's next time on Customer Experience Letters. I'm Adam Jaffrey. Thanks for listening. We'll speak to you next time.